0: Welcome to Volume One Hundred Two of Broadway Bullet. I'm your host Michael Gilbo, and thanks for joining us again. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode, the season debut with the live performances from Grey Gardens. Those exclusives. If you missed it, you definitely want to check it out. We've got uh, next week. We're going to be doing a musical for you, The Diet Monologues. They came in and performed live, and her words exactly were, "I felt that if Grey Gardens sent their cast in to perform, I better get mine in." So that'll be a treat for you next week. But check out the Grey Gardens if you. Missed Missed it. And we've got a lot for you this episode. We've got The Last Word. We've got Kevin Cahoon in here talking about his theater career and his debut CD. We have got Marty Cooper talking about Follies on, on the positive side. We're going to have a book review in Page Turners. Got the show La Vie Noire at La Mama and a whole bunch more. So we're going to hop right into the program.
5: On the boards,
0: the last word is a new play off Broadway starring Daniel J Travanti. Just opened very recently to some solid reviews, and we have the director and the writer here with us. How are you guys doing? Pretty good.
6: Very well. You want Thank to introduce you. yourselves quickly? Uh, I'm Alex Lippert. I'm the director of the last word, and I'm Lauren Safty, the writer. And on a side note, I have to say, I was
0: thinking your name sounded familiar. You came and looked familiar, and it immediately hit me that I'd seen one of your productions that you directed while you were a grad student at uh, Columbia.
6: Really? Which one was that? It was I forget the name of it. It was uh, it was a music it was a new musical. It was a staged reading. Oh, maybe it was Mall Story. Oh yeah, that was it. It was about the kids kids in the mall on drugs. It was kind of like <laughs> Rent meets Kids. Very Columbia
4: University. Didn't go anywhere but great music. <laughs> we're, we're both from Columbia actually. I went there too. All right. When did you go there? I was there in 90 Six ninety-five, but I was in the fiction writing program, MFA. Is that how you got together
0: on this play at all? By because you were there at Columbia at different times, but
6: um, not quite. Although we, I'm trying to build a mafia, <laughs> but it's <laughs> it so was far. through Daniel Trevanti we we actually got connected. I was an assistant director on a show about nine years ago at Arena Stage in Washington. Dan Trevanti was playing the lead in an, a Eugene O'Neill play, and I was the little assistant director. And uh, Dan and I stayed in touch for years. I kept sending him scripts saying, will you do this? Will you come to New York and do this? And he said, no, I don't like the part. It's not big enough. It's got to be a star role. And finally, he said to me, if I, if I keep saying no, will you stop sending me things? And I said, no. <laughs> and then about a month later, he called me and, and uh, said, I've got this script for you that you should read. Yes,
4: yeah, so we originally did it in uh, Los Angeles just a three-week tryout there. And then after we did it there, he told me to uh, contact Alex.
0: Here. Well, I guess before we go so much further, um, maybe you can set the stage
6: a little bit for our listeners as to what the show's about. The show uh, takes place in real time. It's about 80 minutes long, no intermission. It's, uh, it's the story of a, of a job interview. There's a, a young kid from NYU who answers an ad. A playwright wants to... Uh, have an assistant because he's losing his eyesight and just needs someone to do dictation and that kind of thing. And he shows up and is immediately bombarded with this cranky opinionated older gentleman's opinions on, on everything from what's a great play to why kids today do everything wrong. <laughs> so um, the kid starts off needing a job and soon finds himself sucked into doing things for the guy uh, and guilt-tripped into opening mail. He tries to leave, and the guy says, Oh, come on, I'm blind. Can you help me out? And as the kid gets more comfortable in his own skin in the room, there starts to be a real dialectic, a real argument about um, whether what a good play really is. Is a good play based in reality as it really is, or reality as it should be? and the kid sides sides more on the uh, on the side of reality and the older gentleman
4: sides more with fantasy and uh, as well as the world in terms of general if it's a better world from the past as uh, henry Grunewald would see it or you know is this the new world better there's that as well. and there's a, there's
6: a lot of humor that comes out of um, the generation gap and this conflict between essentially a teenage kid and an 84-year-old guy. (laughs) (laughs) There's a real sort of dissonance, I think, between the way they look at the world, and a lot of humor and a lot of laughs comes out of that.
4: The last word actually grew out of my own experience when I was at uh, Columbia. I was working as an assistant for several elderly people, one of them who was uh, a man who was very much similar in the play from Vienna, who had had a successful advertising business and had retired. He was in his 80s and was now pursuing a dream of his life, which he had written all his life but never really had the time. He had family uh, trying to write plays and make it to Broadway, sending out his plays everywhere and getting a lot of rejections. I think his writing was very much suited to you know, the early 20s or 30s. It just didn't seem timely. And he was trying so hard to be timely with his work, but he came from a certain period. And I I just got this sense, and I always do feel, especially in, in, in our society today, that elderly people really kind of fall by the wayside. You know, you walk down the street, you very rarely sort of look at an older person and wonder, oh, what's this whole life? It's almost like they don't exist because they're not players. And, you know, everything's about being up to date here and it's a youth driven culture so i think those two things really drove me in writing this um and feeling a bit that uh, there's a real gap between the generations and and somewhat of a disrespect as well on both sides so that was the driving part for that how old is daniel g Devonti? Travanti is sixty
6: six. Are we allowed to say how old he is? Yeah, <laughs> he's sixty six. Okay. He'll be sixty seven next month. Okay,
4: I was say, the man—he
6: was that old yet? But. The man is is a vegan, uh, who eats very little oil, salt, sugar. He gave up alcohol about thirty five years ago, and. He he looks great, and he's in great physical condition. He's he's in better physical condition than many of my contemporaries. Yeah. He has a lot of energy,
4: and he's sharp as a tack, both physically and mentally. So, but he's very much transformed himself for this role. Like he looks, you know, even on stage, and he's grown a beard, and uh, his hair is growing long. And I remember after we finished the play, and and so he looks, you know, very much the the part in his 80s. But I remember after we finished the play in uh, Los Angeles and we had a post-party after the production, he went upstairs and he shaved his beard and he cut his hair and he came back. And he looked very much like the Daniel J. Gervonta that everyone remembers from Hill Street Blues. I mean, it's quite amazing, the transformation. He
6: also, uh, unlike many actors, doesn't really have vanity when it comes to being seen or remembered the way that he used to look. That's right. He wants to serve the role, and the role is this altercocker from Vienna. So he's got poofy Einstein hair and and a white beard and a little bow tie and a stooped back. It's funny, because a friend of my mother's came to see the show the other day, and she said, I used to have a crush on that guy. (laughs) I don't have a crush on him now. (laughs) It always helps to to have a name actor in in a role, but I, I do feel that Dan is a, is a real stage actor. He's a stage vet. He's done a lot of uh, regional theater stuff. He, he played, uh, like I said, he did the lead in Touch of the Poet at Arena Stage. He did it at ART and Denver Center. He's done um, shows at Old Globe Theater um, and other major regional theaters. So, uh, He's he's got the chops. He understands the language of the stage, and he's extremely expressive. And it's you know in New York, it's, as as you know, it's hit or miss with TV actors coming to do stage. Some of them aren't even audible. Yeah. And uh, Mr. Travanti certainly knows how to work a crowd and knows how to infuse the stage with life. Yeah, it's really exci- It's been very exciting working with him.
4: I think he's more of a theater actor that went into television rather than the other way around. Absolutely.
0: Well, now, you guys just had your review come out in the New York Times this morning. It was a very good review. That must be exciting.
4: Yeah, it's always (laughs) exciting to get the reviews when they're good.
0: Although, Oren, I heard you say before the interview that you felt you were spoiled. Something about this interview didn't... There was Something about this review wasn't what you...
4: (laughs) Well, I've I've been on uh, both sides. I remember I did a play... Uh, it was a musical comedy called Fiddler Subterrane at La Mama, which got such a thrashing. And then I, I came back right after that. I actually wrote my play in 10 days after that thrashing to almost answer the critics and with private jokes, public places, and it was the opposite. So I think I've leveled off a bit. I don't expect too much. And, but sometimes, you know, you see one word and you focus. I think it's just a tendency uh, that we do of focusing on a one word negative thing rather than the ninety percent that might be positive, you can't help it you know I generally
6: tend to think that when reviews are good that they are well written and <laughs> when yeah. reviews are bad that that the reviewer is completely wrong. generally, when a show is reviewed as being good, the cast is lauded as being terrific, and usually when a review is a bad review, the director is. Um, trounced for being weak, so I don't put too much stock in them. I take them completely to heart, and they make me sick for a couple of days, and then I forget about it. And if they're nice, then I send them around and and try to let people know that that hey, look ma, no hands. I, I did this.
4: But I'm I'm always surprised because I never set out to write comedies, and even like with the last play, Private Jokes, Public Places, it was really the press that labeled it as a comedy and a lot of 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 our promotional leading up to the play I think we all saw this as a as a thought provoking serious play which you like to have both really but a lot of the reviews have come out about how it's very funny and hilarious and we didn't see it as a comedy but it seems to have gone that way, and you can't that's not too bad. You know, you just sort of have to let it be what it is, and maybe a different production would be different. Um, I think that's I, since I'm not writing set up jokes so much, the comedy comes out of the awkwardness of the situation, hopefully, which Alex brings out very well, of course. I think that's what's sort of being trumped here in a lot of the reviews that people have been writing.
0: What's all the information? How can people catch the show? It's playing
4: until March 11th, correct? March 11th at Theater St. Clements on uh, West 46th between 9th and 10th. And uh, there's a website for our show, which is
6: thelastwordtheplay.com. All right. Well, I thank the two of you
0: for coming down, and congratulations on your great New York Times review this morning, and best of luck with the run of the show. Thanks very much. Thank you so much.
1: Up. Close.
0: I'm sitting here in the studio with a theater performer and musician-songwriter-singer Kevin Cahoon. How, How are you, you doing? doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Really interested in talking to you. It seems like you have a lot of the kind of parallel
3: path of a career that i've kind of taken oh yeah 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 i think we probably have a lot more in common than we realize (laughs) born in 71 class of 89 we've already figured that out
0: yeah i've had a dual position doing producing and writing pop music as well as musical theater and acting and producing myself and it seems so you have two
3: personalities as well (laughs) you're from montana i'm from texas so wide open spaces in our upbringing
0: well, for our listeners on uh, Broadway Bullet who may not be familiar with your au of work, uh, some of the shows you've done have been Hedwig and the Angry Inch. That's right. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, mm-hmm. Rocky Horror Picture Show, and you just closed out
3: The Wedding Singer. The Wedding Singer, that's right, New Year's Eve. We had a nice uh, year of employment with that show between the out-of-town and Broadway, so that was a good, a
0: good fun run. How long ago did you come to New York to pursue theater?
3: I went to NYU and studied acting. I didn't study musical theater. I went to Circle in the Square. And uh, uh, right after high school, I was 17 when I moved to New York. And uh, I... uh was out of school for about a year and a half, and Tommy was running on Broadway, and uh, I was obsessed with that show, <laughs> and I saw it a hundred thousand times, and I went to the open call probably seven or eight times, kept getting cut over and over and over again. Finally, they said, "You don't have to come to the open call anymore. Trust us. When the role a role opens that you're right for, we'll call you." And that's exactly what they did. So that was my first Broadway show was Tommy, and I was 22 or 23. Uh, finished the run with Tommy. I did it almost a year. And, you know, from then, my, it just sort of, I've been very, very lucky and very blessed that I've been able to make my living as an actor and a musician in New York City, which was always my dream. And my goal. So far, so good. <laughs> I don't have a job now, so
0: <laughs>
3: maybe it's all over. Nice. I saw your very creepy performance in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Oh, thank you. That was—I had a blast doing that. I realized I just saw Mary Poppins, and you know she flies through the roof at the end, and that's exactly what what I did in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang as well. So I uh, I felt I had a little something in my heart for Ashley Brown because you know when you hit the mezzanine and then you hit the balcony it's at that point where you just you just pray because you're like well if something happens it's all over so you know the crew is so great and you know so responsible but uh, flying through the roof at the end of the is something I I hope I don't ever have to do again but it's a great effect so but that show just sort of fell in my lap too because you know they had been actively pursuing a star for that role and you know I kept reading that Meatloaf was going to do it and they were negotiating with Meatloaf and then they kept going through just, you name it, there was a cavalcade of celebrities that, you know, were approached and sort of negotiated for the part. They'd started rehearsals, and they were two days into it, and I guess they realized that the, their wish list wasn't going to come true. So they uh, they gave me a ring and said, hey, can you come? Rehe-? So, you know, the one day you don't have a, a job, and the next day you do. Same thing sort of happened with Lion King. I was in the original cast of Lion King, and... Uh, they were doing the workshop. They said, oh, there's one role they have a cast. Can you come on the lunch break? So I went and auditioned for Julie Taymor. And, you know, that afternoon I had the job. So you wake up in the morning, you don't know what the day's gonna, gonna give you.
0: <laughs> and you had quite a bit of a uh, heavy makeup and prosthetics for... <laughs>
3: chitty, Chitty Bang Bang. Absolutely. Angelina Avalon was who is the most brilliant makeup designer, uh, designed this... Crazy creation, which was sort of Nesferatu um, and it was an hour and a half prep. You know, wow. every day, eight shows a week, and I would take it off in between shows just so I could go outside. That theater is underground, so you know there's no windows. So if I got to the theater, let's say at twelve thirty on a matinee day, and didn't leave till eleven, that would be you know all of those hours with <laughs> prosthetics on. So. You know, I thought, well, I'll just sit in an hour. I read every newspaper in New York every day. I could tell you what was going on in the Post and the News and the Times. <laughs> because when you're sitting in the makeup chair, you know, you gotta you got to fill the time. And Angelina and I had tapped every possible resource of conversation that we had, you know, three hours a day together. I, I love her so much. She's a... Uh, a really, really talented person. And that was you know, Raul
0: Sparza was in the cast with you there. Oh, my
3: God. The cast was incredible. Raul, who I did Rocky Horror with as well. And Erin uh, Dilly, who I'd done Babes in Arms with at Encores and at the Guthrie with. So I'd worked with her before. Of course, the incredible Jan Maxwell and Phil Bosco and, you know, uh, Robbie Sella, Chip Zion, Mark Kudisch. It was an incredible, incredible group. Frank Rader, wonderful, wonderful character actor. It was a great, great group. And I was a bad guy. And, you know, how often do you get that chance to, to be booed the minute you show up on stage? Now, how was the run of The Wedding Singer? That was great. That was really, really fun. You know, I, I've never been in a show. Uh, you know, Rocky Horror and Hedwig were, were, um, were like this. But I've never been in a show where there were 100 200 screaming kids at the stage door every night after the show.
0: You know, it seems to be a show that, you know, and most people that I hear this from also didn't see it. But it seems to be a show that was like widely loathed from people who didn't see it.
3: You know, that's what I hear, you know, and I think uh, I don't really know. You know, I think that it was an old fashioned musical boy meets girl, boy loses girl. But it had a very, very um, common today's vocabulary. It was a very daily show, very sort of Saturday Night Live and its language and its feel and its rhythm and the motor of the show. And I feel like that that was something new. And I feel that people will look back on that show and say, oh, that was the first of the kind of show that had an old-fashioned story but was told in a very, very contemporary sensibility. You know, and I think it's also part of the backlash of all of the movies that they're making into musicals. I think that people are sort of, you know... Sort of getting um, – they're wanting new material. You know, I've been in five Broadway shows, and they've all been inspired and based on movies. You
0: know, they have been since the beginning of movies and musicals. You really. know, everything yeah.
3: is based on something else. Oklahoma you know? was based on Green Grow the Lilacs.
0: Absolutely.
3: <laughs> you know, and Spring well, Awakening. Well, that was a movie. a play. But, well, that was a play. but, but, but Spring Awakening is based on source material. There's always source material. It, I don't know. I guess people can be – I think – I do know this for sure. The people that came to Wedding Singer – It meant a lot to a lot of people. You know, they loved it. They loved the characters. They came dressed as the characters. I would not seen that a lot in my uh, theatrical (laughs) career. What can I say? You know, people are going to like it or they're not going to like it. And Hopefully the yeah. show will have some... I'm sure the show will have some life in oh, the regional it's gonna, theaters and community well, theaters. And- I'm telling you, every high school is going to do The Wedding Singer because, you know, it's a sweet show. It's got a huge heart. It's got a great score. Um, they're doing a national tour. They're doing a production in, I think it's Japan already. The Wedding Singer will have a long life. And I'm extremely proud to have been a part and and play George, who is that, you know, crazy little... Unicorn in Ridgefield, New Jersey. There was only one of him and uh I'm really proud to have been a part. And that's an incredible cast too. Now
0: you know? do you do you have a on the cast album, do you have a song that's dominantly yours or uh There's George's
3: mm-hmm. Prayer, yeah, which was my uh song that was uh at the Bar mitzvah and it was sort of a Spandau ballet inspired. Um and then I have You want us to play that right now? Sure, why not? Well you want need to set it up. It's a little short. Bit? It's short. George's Prayer. We're at the Bar Mitzvah. Um I used to play the chauffeur in this song, Out of Town in Seattle, but then we changed that to a trumpet, and um, you know, just imagine me in full George boy George regalia uh, singing at Jared Shapiro's bar mitzvah. <laughs> <All right. laughs> I knew
0: there. Absolutely. Now, backing up a little bit, sure, which sure. is also used to move kind of forward. You played as an actor in Hedwig and the Angry Inch. I did. Which I did. Also, kind of evidently led to you getting the confidence to start your own rock project. Absolutely. As a
3: you know, I've always, you know, I've always loved rock music and pop music, and grew up with that. And you know, that was always a dream of mine. But I never really thought that. Can I really get a band together and play gigs in New York City? But then I you know, had the great, great, great opportunity to stand by for John Mitchell, do one show a week at Hedwig when it was Jane Street, was not the phenomenon that it is now. And um, that gave me the confidence that, yeah, I can front a band. And so I, I formed my band after that point and um, started playing gigs at CBGB's and Don Hills and all of those clubs downtown. And it just sort of took off. And, um, you know, the album, this first album, Doll, is sort of a product of all of that time. You know, I guess it took about three or four years to make this record because I'd have an extra $2,000. And I'd be like, okay, so we can go record this song and have this song mixed. Or we can do the album artwork. So it really was a labor of love and, and took a bit of time to do. But, you know, it came out and we won the Out Music Award uh, for debut recording and Billboard songwriting uh, uh, mention and the it's really it's really uh I've gotten so much out of it personally and and professionally as well. And I've got to play at CBGB's a number of times and how many people can say that now with it not being open anymore but uh all those little dreams come true that you just you just have to do it. That's the key. You just have to do it.
0: Now the CD is very glam inspired kind of David Bowie mm-hmm. era Stuff mixed with a lot of, you know, fun. You know, David Bowie almost mixes with like poison in some ways. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I say not that extreme, but was is the performance that you do as flamboyant as the music.
3: It is is very theatrical. You know, and a lot of the reviews for the record said, you know, this is a performance art record. You know, it is a rock record and it's pop record, but there is definitely a character, there's definitely a beginning and a middle and an end, there's definitely a journey. I wanted to create an album that really was an album of liberation for those people who always felt like, you know, the outsider, which I think all of us can feel that way. But the people that really were the nerds and the dorks who sort of end up, you know, running the world, so to speak. <laughs> I wanted to create an album for those people, an album of liberation. And um, our live shows are very much that way as well. I want it to be sort of like a happening, you know, from the seventies, things that were going on at La Mama and those sort of those sort of experiences. So we have A lot of sort of dancers and sort of just people being out in the house, if you will. We have DJ John John Battles, who's a big DJ downtown, who uh, comes with us and he sort of spins before the show. And there's always surprises. There's always a special guest that shows up that's unannounced. And uh, last time we were – last show we did was at Joe's Pub in November. Justin Bond showed up and uh, of Kiki and Herb fame and did a little Red Corvette you know but we've had you know Leah DeLaria stop by Davner Ruben Vega there's always some sort of surprise guest i'm always wearing something that i would never wear um in daytime on the street <laughs> it's always something uh, very creative and out there and uh you know and all of my all of my band and the people that i work with have a have their left foot in the theater as well. Uh, Angela Lockett, Montego Glover, sing with me. Jan Tilley, I met doing Hedwig. Brian Brannigan plays at Avenue Q. Damien plays at Color Purple. David Nell's, keyboard player, uh, wrote the Great American Trailer Park musical, who's a co-writer with me on a lot of the tracks. So... You know, we we all have a theatrical sensibility.
0: Now you mentioned earlier that you won the out awards for the thing, so I'm thinking yeah. you're an upfront about your sexuality then.
3: Absolutely. Well, you know, absolutely. I yeah. I don't think course. there's
0: a you know, in theater it's kinda common for absolutely. still to be out, but yeah, in, yeah. in music still it seems like there's a lot of people wanting to stuff that part away.
3: Yeah, I yeah, anything. I think so. And I don't know you know, I think that the world is changing. And I think that Shifting, you can already tell that it's shifting. The whole world is changing their sensibility, their uh, what they think is acceptable, and what the real what it is. It's com- being comfortable, and I think that people are becoming more and more comfortable with you know issue of people being different. And uh, you know, rock and roll has always been dangerous, and I think when rock and roll is good, it is dangerous. And I think that it's a bit scary for people because i think that that you know entices people as well and so i thought that that's was one of the great things about this record is that it was going to be honest and it was going to be up front and you know sexuality has always been and the glam rock especially has always been very gray <laughs> and uh i just couldn't live with myself any other way if i put out something a piece of art that came from me that was dishonest in any way.
0: So. Well, now I understand you also worked with uh, a very talented musician and producer that w- it was in here in the studio last season playing for Tasty Skank.
3: Spurn, <laughs> yeah. the one and only Spurn, who... Uh, I met Spurn through a great singer-songwriter, a friend of mine who lived in New York now in Nashville, uh, Vanessa Hendrick. And we met originally there. But then, by chance, we ended up doing Hedwig together as well, Spurn and I. And Spurn and I got together and wrote this song uh, called Fashionista. We wrote this song. He's so talented. He's with Tasty Stank. Uh, <laughs> they were in here together, right? Spurn yeah, and Tasty yeah. Stank. Yeah. Kate Reinders and Sarah Litzinger. And Fashionista is a song about, you know the one that's in the post, the one that's in the press, who really has, does not have any talent at all, but yet people are obsessed with her. And, you know, y- you seem to be glued to this person for some unknown reason. So that's the song Fashionista. And, um, we just actually, we have a video for Fashionista. Yeah. so shot. The
0: song's been in heavy rotation on my iPod since we played it. On, I love it. On Thank next you. big hit last year. We're going to play it again here in a minute.
3: Yeah. And <laughs> the video, it's going to debut on Logo. Uh, and, um, uh, all of the online sort of outlets for that, Rolling Stone, I Film, you name it. But the video, especially for people who know theater, is going to be a kick for them to watch. Because Deidre Goodwin, who is one of the stars of *Course Line, many other Broadway musicals, is the fashionista. Uh, Tasty Skank makes a cameo. Michael Musto from The Voice makes a cameo. Constantine uh... from american idol makes a cameo and there's all kinds of great theater actors playing characters in that video uh... ej Carroll, uh... who's a great character actor um, a lot of people from wedding singer elaine marcos eric summers adina alexander who's been in tons of broadway shows who's so talented if you see this video you're gonna have a, a blast picking out oh my gosh there's so-and-so there's so-and-so there's so-and-so we shot it uh... on the street uh, we rented an ice cream truck and we shot the first half on the street during the during the day and then we shot the second half at Ars Nova and we had an open bar and we just sort of created uh, this party and you know, the rest is history. Well, let's check out Fashionista then.
6: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Last night I fell in love I don't know her name Everybody knew her Now is my claim to fame See, France the dormant She's a rock and roll roll. She's a rock and roll
6: And all the hipsters sing She invades the air She had her eye on the prize A giant among poodles I was hypnotized She's got no
3: way of telling, but she's on stage because she's a rock and roll.
0: Just to wrap up Ab, the audience that your live shows, I imagine must be really with, with such a theater following, I imagine it's very easy for them to get into the excess in the fun absolutely
3: of the night. absolutely, you know, and along with the excess uh, I, I hope that there's heart, you know, I hope that there's heart, and I hope that people listen to the music and hear the message of the music and um, it really is it really is a fun, fun happening and our audiences range, you know, there's teenagers that are in high school. You know, it means so much to me when kids come to the stage door. At Wedding Singer, this happened a lot, because the release of the album was the same time. And they said, oh my gosh, I am, I'm the kid who played with dolls. I, I do play with dolls. I love your album so much. So that means a lot to me. I'm like, ah, oh, good, good. Someone, it worked. Teenagers come to the shows, then you have, you know, you know middle-aged people, and then even even older older people and uh, really respect it and get it and enjoy it and uh, the live shows are, are the most fun part of the whole of the whole thing
0: so is there an easy place
3: people can go to find out about your live shows where absolutely. to get your CD what you're coming up in next and- absolutely well the album uh, is Shikaboom and Razor and Tie, so you can go to either of those locations to find the record. The record's also in stores all across the country. You can go to Virgin Tower. Uh, my boyfriend's sister was in Alaska. It was in Tower in Alaska. <laughs> I went to Virgin in Times Square and took pictures next to it, you know, it's corny. It's all over the country in record stores. You can go to KevinCahoon.com. Yeah, so it's out there.
0: Well, I thank you for coming down and talking with us here. Thank you so, so much. Next My Big Hit and Broadway Bullet. Thank you. Okay, good luck with everything. <laughs> thank you. You can also hear another song of Kevin Cahoon's from his solo album, Dull, on our sister podcast, The B-Side of Next Big Hit. So just go to nextbighit.com and look for the volume 202 B-Side, which will be out
7: Friday. On the Positive Side. Hey, once again, it's Marty Cooper on the Positive Side. In 1971, I was about 26 years old. I went to the Winter Garden Theater, saw a show called Follies, and fell in love with it. And it became my first obsession. I uh, went about 12 times. I loved it, I loved the plot, I loved the music, uh, the orchestrations, the dancing, everything. It was, at the time, it was two hours and 20, 20 minutes, no intermission, and it was just a thrilling theatrical experience. Uh, Now this past Sunday, uh, I went to Encores. I know last week, I gave a very favorable review of Company, and I still think it's a wonderful production, but in hearing the opening notes of Jonathan Tunick's orchestrations, I'm of the belief that uh, Jonathan Tunick, his orchestrations are part of the Sondheim experience. Here I'm watching a 30-piece orchestra, which I don't think you'll ever see in a Broadway theater again. And knowing every single note that the orchestra was playing, every little nuance, every little bit of string orchestration, uh, woodwind orchestration, you just know it and it's all in the right place. And I found it quite amazing. I found it like uh, watching a a symphony being performed where most symphonies are done exactly the same way every time they're performed. And this was the same thing. I'm of the belief, after watching Company a couple of weeks ago, and and Follies, I think I'm just getting it, that I think Mr. Sondheim knows more about the human condition than anyone I can think of. About marriage, about love, about living with people, about dealing with hardship, about knowing exactly where your place is. I mean, when you have a line like, uh, someone to sit in my chair, or put me through hell, you know what he's talking about. And I also feel that that I think sometime in his life, he wanted that hookup. Mr. Sondheim himself, he's kind of longing for that hookup, uh, and he shows it especially in a show like Company or Follies. Uh, And in fact, the end of Follies, I had a disagreement with my wife because she always thought that he doesn't approve of marriage. But the end of Follies, I believe, is, is, is very affirming. It has a very positive statement about marriage, uh, where he shows that when people are falling apart, the first place they go to is their spouse, you know, even though there was disagreement throughout. I think basically, when you watch this show, you're watching two couples airing out their dirty laundry. Uh, and that's exactly what it is and but it's done in such good fashion you don't look at it this way you look at it as kind of a life lesson as you might have guessed i loved everything about it it's one of the great theatrical experiences i've ever had i was sitting in a theater that was just full of about i think city center gets about twenty seven hundred people and it was packed and Everyone was just soaking this up. To me, it was a show for the ages. Once again, this is Marty Cooper, and until next week, stay on the positive side.
0: On the Positive Side is brought to you by The Colony. Online at colonymusic.com or in the heart of the theater district at 49th and Broadway, you can always say, I found it at The Colony. (laughs) The Call Board. There's a few community and charity events around that I want to let everybody know about. On February 25th, ABC Daytime salutes Broadway Cares to benefit Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS, featuring Mary Poppins, Ashley Brown, and Tarzan's Josh Strickland. On February 26th, Crazy Rhythm, a night in Manhattan to benefit the Bay Street Theater, featuring Mary Clear Heron. It will be an elegant evening celebrating the glamorous song and dance of Manhattan in the 20s and 30s. On February 26th, my first-time benefit concert for quality services for the autistic community. Also on the 26th, Broadway Backwards 2 to benefit New York's lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community senator. Hmm. I don't know if they have a senator, but I'm pretty sure they have a center. Sorry. And on February 28th, the first of a brand-new initiative that everybody's trying out, there's going to be Singles Night on Broadway. Uh, Maybe a lot of you're interested. (laughs) These quips and notices are fast, but we do now have links to absolutely everything we talk about this show on our website at BroadwayBullet.com. You can just select the volume 102 episode and you'll find links and pictures relating to everything we talk about, not just the headline stories. As I'm cutting this, uh, some people still have a little time to sign up to win the two free tickets from Grey Gardens, so I will announce the winners next week on the show. But you do still have all week until Wednesday the 21st to sign up as a registered user of our website, and everybody who signs up is going to receive a great... Ticket discount to Grey Gardens. And the call board isn't meant to be just local to New York. If any of you know of any great charity events or contest events going around, uh, just send an email to me at info at broadwaybullet.com and just make a headline that says it's for the call board. <laughs>
5: On the boards.
0: Over the past several years, Prospect Theater has been building a quite a name for itself, getting original musicals on their feet. We've had a few people from Prospect in here before with the shows *Illyria* and *The Flood*, and now we have a brand new musical that will be playing from February 5th to March 4th, called Talk Tick*. And we have the lyricist, librettist, and the director with us today. How are you doing?
8: Good, thank uh, you. Doing well.
0: Would you like to introduce yourselves quickly?
8: Uh, my name's Tim Nevitz. I'm the librettist, uh, lyricist for the show. I'm Jackson Gay, the director.
0: Tell us about Toctic.
8: It's a fantasy musical piece, and the premise of the piece is when you die, a dragon comes to take you away, and so uh, a little girl is trying to save her mother from dying, and so she journeys, doing everything she can, to this clock at the center of the universe to slay her mother's dragon of death, and uh, that's really what the journey is.
0: So, Jackson, what brought you on board with the show?
9: Well, this um, uh, prospect gave me... Um, my first directing opportunity when i first moved to new york and since then i've uh, done two shows they uh, akara reichel the artistic director um, approached me and and, uh, had me read and listen to this piece and um, basically asked me if i would do it and i fell in love with uh, everything about it and happily came on board
0: now i understand prospect gave you your first directing opportunity
9: yes they did (laughs) i'm very very grateful to them
0: (laughs) so what was it like getting your first directing gig in new york
9: it was very very exciting you know um it's harder than you would imagine uh just to get your foot in the door and get started and it's the kind of opportunity that that you know, people kind of will die for. So it was wonderful for them to take a chance on me and give me that opportunity.
0: And It's good that you come back to keep working with them.
9: Absolutely, forever, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, Tim, what inspired you to get into writing this musical? What What made it tick for uh, you? Well, it
9: was our thesis piece <laughs> at
8: the Graduate Musical Theater Writing Program at NYU, and uh, Jihei and I uh, were working together on our thesis, and we we're, you know, were trying to talk about what, what to write about. And... Um, I think both of us had experienced um, some kind of loss in our lives. And we wanted to write about, you know, what it's like to lose someone and the, the fear of losing someone. And that was the, in, in about time, you know, and that was really the genesis of the piece.
0: So how long did it take you then to finally write the show?
8: Um, <laughs> it never seems <laughs> to be finished. Isn't um, that always the case? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we did um, at NYU pretty much October to May was our initial first draft. And that was when the really big push happened, and from then we've had incremental changes on and off through various readings uh, since our NYU program.
0: All right, before we continue, why don't we play one of the songs from the show? Would you like to set up this first song we're going to play?
8: What do you think, Airplane? Sure. All right. Uh, In the journey, the, the, the daughter, to save her mother, has to go, you know, get to the clock to save her mother and the way to get there is by airplane you know and so this song here is about the excitement of getting in an airplane and traveling you know with hope to save the mother and uh so this is the little girl and her uncle the dragon slayer heading off in an airplane come and join this lucky feller
7: give a chug on the propeller and spin it slow now let it go Boom. The propeller Is accelerating
0: Feel the shudder And the sputter As the motor starts It's muttering Nothing so sweet As sink a flutter Painting, climbing Come aboard There are dragons Waiting for
1: us For me and you what? fight, they're dragons, they might still, we have to save time we must take this flight in your airplane rip, roar, and let's burn some diesel and fly
0: high hurry up, Newton! I'm almost ready kiddo! Let me flip a switch, then toggle the toggle read the gauges here kid, here's some goggles ready set, here we go
1: Think so? I looked out at the ground, but the ground's not there. Ah! ah. <laughs> ah. ah. ah.
0: ah. What was that? I, I swallowed clouds. How did it taste? Like a, mm, a, mm, a marshmallow. Let me try. Mm, banana. It tastes like
3: cinnamon, Ouban, toffee, asparagus,
0: oatmeal, honey rolls,
6: hot
3: black coffee.
6: Eating clouds
3: will make you thinner. They won't ever spoil your
1: dinner.
0: Clean,
1: neat,
10: whole, sweet,
1: cloud. Yes. Uh, hey,
3: no kissing. It wasn't me. Oh yeah? Then who was it?
6: Ah! Nothing so sweet as too hot, plus painting. Come on. come, on. Hey. come on.
3: They're
1: in outer space outer space
6: how do we get
4: there just you <laughs> watch <laughs> ah chak 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 chak
0: chak 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 Chugger, 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 chugger,
6: chugger, 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 chugger,
1: chugger, 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 chugger,
6: chugger, chugger, chugger,
0: chugger,
1: chugger, chugger, chugger,
7: chugger, 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 dream it to
0: One of the fantastic things, of course, with Prospect is that with musicals that are in development, they don't just put them through constant development hell, readings after readings after readings, actually get it on its feet in a production. So, I'm I'm kind of curious, as you know, the we're recording this interview while you're still in hell and tech week, <laughs> um, but paint a picture, kind of like of what the the staging and the and the scenery and the setting is like for for our listeners.
8: The set and the way it all works together is really kind of magical. It becomes this this world of. Um, it's, it's, it's I don't want to say it's a child world, but it it, it comes from like the twelve year old. It's these pieces that are bright colors that move apart and come together, and um, it's kind of exciting to see it go up.
9: Yeah. So I guess you know, for instance, when she um, goes into the clock, the we have a, a set piece um, designed by Ola Maslik and. It's, it's a large clock, and the way that we sort of um, make that happen when she goes in is the clock splits in half and actors pull it apart. Um, much of the set is actor-driven, and as Tim said, it's very, it's very colorful and um, a little two-dimensional, I would say. Very theatrical. It's a theatrical way of, of kind of making things happen
0: what What have been the biggest challenges in Tech Week right now for you guys?
8: <laughs> There's so many pieces, Do you know, I'm not
9: I mean, we're talking physical pieces, transitions, you know, the band, the orchestra. Um, we have a wonderful uh, group of musicians. They're not able to come into the process until you know very at the very end. So it really is everything at once. Trying to get the band and and the actors and the music director and um, revisions on the script, the set painted, the you know props completed, everything. Just um, it's it's pretty insane over there right now. But uh, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and I, I think in the end it's all gonna uh, come together.
0: <laughs> Your leading actress Jennifer Blood was on a show earlier with the flood. Yes. So and now she's in toxic so how, how's it like working with her
9: not only is she you know really an amazing singer but she's a very very good actress very um very funny very emotionally accessible um she has a great energy and attitude she's willing to try anything she's kind of a dream and basically she,
8: yeah and she really brings the piece to life you know i, I you know when the, when the show has its you know bright moments a lot of it's just coming from her as an actor so
0: well, we'll to, so where can everybody go see the show and all that great information?
8: The West End Theater uh, on uh, 86th Street between Broadway and West End.
9: Please well. come. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so it sounds very interesting. I thank you guys for coming down, especially while you're crazy in your Tech Week crunch
9: thank you so much thank you
0: so as we leave here though we're going to play one more song okay so would you like to set this up quickly sure
8: uh as chelsea is you know our our 12 year old daughter is uh, traveling to get to this clock at the center of the universe she finds herself lost and hopeless you know and she's kind of floating in space and you know she sings a song that her mother sang to her and then she's kind of comforted by the stars of the universe around her
0: all right well thanks so much
1: i see suns Stars up in the sky There's a billion and five I can count them They go tick, tock Ring around the clock Like a yo-yo as it unwinds But the stars, dizzy Spin round and round Till they're unwound. Unwind like yo-yos and spools of twine. La, la 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 la.
10: This is Max Montel for Drama Bookshop and Broadway Bullet, reviewing Creating Life on Stage by Marshall Mason. There is no doubt that Marshall Mason is one of the great directors of the past half century. With his new book, Creating Life on Stage, he has shown himself to be one of the great teachers of directing as well. Not all great directors make great teachers, and not all great teachers make great directors. I'm too young to have seen Harold Klerman's work, but there seems to be a consensus that his productions did not always meet the standards of his wonderful seminal book on directing. Mason's book, written in a clear, often chatty voice, undertakes to describe a system for directors, akin to Stanislavski's for actors, that can reliably clear the way for inspiration and creativity. Mason draws on both his own vast experience and the groundwork set down by other major figures, ranging from Ilya Kazan and Sanford Meisner to Anne Bogart. The result is a rich blend of the traditional and the adventurous, drawing on the best of each. He describes how to make effective use of improvisation to stimulate the depths of actors' creativity, explore the history of the play but don't demand a predetermined conclusion, as well as innovative techniques such as the baby exercise for lovers. Check it out. You'll love it. Nor does he neglect the basics, and even they can have a fresh feel to them. Look for advice on how breaking down a script and constructing a rehearsal schedule can be conduits for inspiration. Even volume notes and tech can make a good story. After shouting several times from the back of the theater, I can't hear you during a dress rehearsal, an actor shouted back in frustration, Fuck you! To which Mason immediately replied, That I heard. Most of the book, however, is devoted to creating a rehearsal dynamic that invites the maximum creativity and enthusiasm from designers and actors alike. We'll try to be something of a family here, he tells his cast, but our family will be based on mutual respect. He goes on to add, if we, the artists, cannot communicate with each other, how can we hope to communicate with an audience? Creating life on stage is an important and welcome book to any director's library. None that I have seen offers the kind of advice for talking to designers that Mason gives, both practical and rich. It is telling that he calls this section not working with designers or dealing with designers, but rather stimulating designers. The same holds true for working with playwrights, and if there's one thing Marshall Mason knows, it's how to sustain a successful relationship with a playwright. His 50-year collaboration with Lanford Wilson is proof enough of that. There are a few times where he seems a bit caught up in the virtues of his approach, telling us in one instance that he thought his production of Private Lives was much funnier and more honest than the acclaimed Broadway production the same year. But this is hardly a flaw. His goal is to help directors create work they can be justifiably proud of. The approach to directing he describes from choosing a play to enduring opening night may just be one man's opinion, but any director would do well to consider his techniques. Maybe the highest compliment I can pay it is this. I'll be using it. This is Max Montel for a Drama Bookshop and Broadway
0: Bullet. Page Turners is brought to you by the Drama Bookshop. In New York City, online, or by the telephone, you can always rely on the Drama Bookshop's friendly and extremely knowledgeable staff for all of your theater book needs.
5: On the boards.
0: Reality television recently has made us very much question what indeed is reality, and we're... Here with a playwright, director, and an actor who are doing a show that mixes that concept with the old noir stylings. We're here with people with La Vie Noire. How are you doing? Hey. hey. Very good. good. Everybody want to take a second to introduce yourselves and say what you're doing with the show?
5: I'm Jim New. I wrote the show, and I'm one of the actors in it.
0: Mary
2: Schultz. I'm in it.
0: Keith McDermott. I'm directing the show. The show is opening at La, La Mama on February 15th. What, you know, what's the show about?
5: It's about a group of uh, unusual people who find themselves in a trapped together in a dangerous situation. And they have to interact with each other and deal with this situation. They're in a high-rise tropical nightclub in the middle of America in a small American town during a, an increasingly dangerous storm. And uh, because of a lightning strike, they are trapped up there, and they must uh, figure out how to get out
1: of this situation.
2: And they're not necessarily people who know how to interact very well,
1: to begin <laughs> <Right>. with. <laughs> Mysterious strangers battle natural disasters at the top of a, uh, the tallest building in a small city, in a bar.
0: Now, Keith, I understand you've been working with uh, Jim as a director for eight shows.
1: Uh, Yes, we've done about, I I think that's probably conservative. I've uh, been directing Jim's shows for about 10 years, um, everywhere from La Mama to Ljubljana. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, Slovenia.
0: Does that help create a good shorthand dialogue for you guys? Not getting sure. what you
1: want accomplished on stage? Well, it does, and we um, uh, Jim writes for uh, the actors that are we use repeatedly. Mary is one of them who's done lots of Jim shows. Uh, Black-Eyed Susan is another. We have another regular in our company, Augusto Machado. A lot of um, great downtown actors. <laughs> and we're a company that repeats itself in a lot of Jim's plays. So, Jim... Did the idea for the story come
0: first, or the idea that you wanted to write something in a noir vein? It's hard to tell the difference
5: between those two things. I wanted to write the story first. It began as a a dialogue between Mary and I, but it kept getting more interesting, and I uh, was thinking a lot about the concepts we were talking about, and it became much more of a full-length play as I kept writing. It was kind of an organic progression.
0: Well, maybe then before we talk a little further, should we do the excerpt that we're talking about from the show?
5: Why not? Let's want do to it. set this up? This is uh, the be- very beginning of the play, in which uh, the- when the lights come up, we see Mary Schultz at the bar and the bartender, Myrna. And there's an elevator that brings you to this bar. And the bar, uh, the lights come up, the elevator door is open. I walk in, I get a drink from the bartender. And I slowly approach Cora. How long are you going to act like you don't know me?
2: It's no act.
5: Okay, okay. I guess if you're going to do it, you got to do it.
2: I don't know you.
5: I understand.
2: I don't think so.
5: Okay, we're strangers.
2: I don't like the way you think you know what's going on.
5: I'll play it any way you say.
2: Let's play it like we never met.
5: Never before or never now?
2: Never ever.
5: After all this?
2: There is no all of this.
5: There is for me.
2: You think I'm the wrong person, or you say this to everyone. Either way,
5: no thanks. Even if I promise to not act like I know what's going on? You
2: do think you know what's
5: going on. Sorry.
2: Sorry and wrong.
5: Okay. I have no idea what's going on.
2: How could I believe you?
5: Can't we keep going and see if it gets easier?
2: You want to talk to me for practice?
5: That's it. Like I'm learning English.
2: Whatever happens... Oh, a lot to you being the only other customer here.
5: Yeah, not much of a crowd for a Tuesday.
2: Small talk.
5: I'm just noticing what you said.
2: You being believable, huh?
5: You planning to narrate the whole conversation?
2: You bring out the voiceover in
5: me. The way you tell it, there's a lot I don't hear.
2: There's a lot that's not there.
5: Truckloads.
2: Indifference is a hard emotion to project.
5: You could give lessons.
2: You might have to be born with it.
5: Does this feel like it's actually happening to you?
2: Hmm. What's another possibility
5: for me, we have a cinematic quality, huh. are we in it or at it? The eternal question
2: I wonder how they asked it before,
0: so we were talking before we actually start the interview how uh you took a lot of the themes from reality television and and our perception of what's reality and not and kind of blended them into what's going on with the characters in the show mm-hmm.
5: yeah, I, I just feel like uh. I'm interested in the contemporary times, and one of the things I've uh, often based my plays on is how we've evolved generations of people who spend a lot of time looking at entertainment. From when movies became so big, and then television, we spend more and more times than any previous civilization did watching instead of participating and it seems to me it might be a problem that we can't tell the difference are we in it or at it when there's so much on television it's really hard to tell the difference between something that's actually happening and say a war movie
0: mary and uh keith when you're dealing with a noir thing there's lots of stylistic you know precedence obviously mm-hmm. for the thing and does that present a challenge or is it something you enjoy kind of doing that's a little different than the thing from from both of your ends how does how does the noir styling affect your performance and participation
2: mm, i'm sure it affects yeah i'm sure it affects it because i'm ai love movies i love old movies and i've seen you know. I love noir, so I've watched them a lot. So there's no getting around, that, you know, and the rhythm is there, even though Jim's writing is, you know, it it sort of um, uh, indicates like a, a, it has like a noir rhythm, but it's not, but it's his own, you know, obviously his own writing, which is this thing unto itself. But you can't, you know, you, you do fall into this noir rhythm. So, yeah, there's absolutely...
5: Yeah, part of it's the writing and part of it's all those movies we've seen, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. it's double Indemnity. You know how to, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's great male-female interactions in those movies. And to evoke that is uh, part of what we're doing here. Keith?
1: Uh, well, uh, we have, do a lot under street light. You know, the mysterious street, the lighting, uh, the night. Um, it gives us a lot of... Uh, Suggestions of how the actors might use their body. Um, the rhythm of the dialogue has a mystery to it, or what people say, as in noir movies. Um, and our lighting designer, who is also Jim's wife, understands the sort of noir details of lighting, too, so we use that.
0: So, the three of you, what are some of your favorite noir movies as you bring that up? Oh, Double Indemnity. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. My favorite movie. <laughs>
4: yeah,
2: I would have to say that's one of mine. And, um, oh, there's so many. I don't Postman know.
5: Postman Always Rings Twice. Oh, that's mm-hmm. great. The Big Sleep. Yeah, sure. Keep that's on. hardly a bad line in Double Indemnity. I mean, you, even the throwaway stuff is eloquent. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, there I go again. Yeah. So you've you've done a few works at La Mama as well. Oh, yeah, this will be about the 15th, I think, or somewhere between 12 and 15, I lose count.
0: So what do you think is the great thing about working with La Mama as a playwright, director? You know, I
5: think. Oh, it, it's a great feeling of uh, belonging there. I mean, you, you do become part of a family, and they don't call it La Mama for nothing. She does think of you as one of her children. I'm talking about Ellen Stewart, the great Ellen Stewart. And uh, La Mama this last year f- celebrated its 46th the year. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of Broadway theaters that aren't going that long.
1: <laughs> I think it's the uh, oldest off-off Broadway theater uh, in New York. Is it? I think so. And just uh, technically, it's so good to work there because they have they own a whole building downtown that's just rehearsal spaces. So we have a rehearsal spaces for weeks before we start uh, they're very good about giving us space for the initial readings of the play um, and it's a, it becomes a known quantity we know the electricians we know the stage managers we know the carpenters everything it is familial
0: mm-hmm. all right so
5: when can they catch the show starting february 15th uh, at La Mama for three weeks. The, our weeks uh, go from Thursday through Sunday afternoon. There's a performance Thursday, Friday, Saturday at 8, Sunday at 2.30, and uh, three weekends of that.
0: All right. Well, I thank you guys so much for coming down as you get ready to mount your show. And best of luck with everything. Thanks. Thank you. Nice.
2: Top of the Trades.
0: Here are a couple of the top theater news stories this week, brought to you by BroadwayWorld.com, your most comprehensive source for theater news online. The Roundabout Theatre Company will most likely be bringing the hit many-year chocolate factory production of Sunday in the Park with George to Broadway next season, according to Variety. (laughs) Can't go a season without Sondheim. The article states that the Roundabout, a frequent presenter of Stephen Sondheim's work, no kidding, is laying plans for the transfer, which would be mounted at Studio 54, the current home of The Apple Tree. Rehearsals would begin in December 2007, and the boy at O-Star will likely produce. No casting has been announced. Next up, according to Fox News, Dreamgirls star Jennifer Hudson, Beyonce Knowles, and Anika Noni-Rose will perform Listen, Love You, I Do, and Patience on the Academy Awards telecast on February 25th. Set your TiVos, or I guess just YouTube it after the fact. Well, the La Jolla Playhouse announced their 2007-2008 season. Uh, Des McAnuff Run Workshop has an exciting season on board. We can't list every single show because, well, the press release was practically a novel, but we do have a link to it from broadwaybullet.com in the show notes for volume 102. But the biggest shock was that previously announced was The Nightingale. But due to scheduling conflicts, the Stephen Sater Duncan Cheek Workshop musical has been canceled and will not be a part of La Jolla Playhouse's 2007 season. Artistic Director Des Mcnuff explained that he was incredibly excited to work with Stephen Sater and Duncan Sheik, but with the planning of the season came a very busy time for the powerhouse creative team. With the success of Spring Awakening, their schedules became incredibly hectic, and they weren't able to make their respective schedules mesh. Des Mcnuff continued to say that he remains very interested in their work and is possible that they will be in talks to do this project in the future, but for now, they just couldn't get the timing right. We wish them the best of luck. That last was actually a quote from Desmick enough, but we here at Broadway Bullet do indeed wish them the best of luck. And for the last thing, I, w- I want to figure out where we can petition in to actually let the best cast album recording at the Grammys be televised. But uh, if you didn't go around and find out what one best cast album, the answer is the Jersey Boys. <laughs> I know a lot of people always wonder why it seems things that are a year old get the Grammys. And I will just make a quick announcement that, you know, the, the nominations close on, like, October 1st of each year. So by the time the Grammys come around in February, the latest thing that could be out would have been October 1st the year before, and it can actually even go, like, almost a year and a half back, basically. So that's the reason, if you're wondering, and, uh, yeah, it could have used a little more exciting fare. I mean, I I think Jersey Boys is great, but it would have been nice to see a new composer win. But there you go, Jersey Boys win the Grammy Best Cast Album. We'll be back again next week with the top news stories of the week in Top of the Trades.
6: Curtain Call.
0: Before we wrap up this program, I wanted to give some kudos to our three outstanding young interns who are now helping out with things. Uh, Laura Costa, Victoria Myers, and Hallie Parsonette have all come on board, and they're making my life easier, and I hope they're making things a little bit more enjoyable for you a lot of the stuff's in the background, so you may not realize it, but they're getting me some a little bit more research information. Right now, you really may want to stop by broadwaybullet.com and check out the show notes, because unlike before, the show notes are just chock full of useful information. They've got more information on the shows than what I talk about. They've got links to everywhere, and in fact, it's not just links on the main stories. If you're wondering about any of those things in the call board or top of the trades, or Marty Cooper's segment, we have links to everything talked about in the program now, in the show notes. So it's a lot more fun to stop by, and you can see some pictures. And we're getting more and more transcriptions up again. So this is all thanks to the interns. Please give them a silent round of applause there while you're listening on your headphones. Laura Costa, Victoria Myers, and Hallie Parsonette. Thanks for coming on board. Please remember to sign up as a registered user for our site. Everybody will get discount offers for Grey Gardens, and there probably will be future things down the line, I am sure. Please uh, continue to fill out our listener survey. I'm going to wrap this up shortly, but I want to get enough people that I got kind of a good statistical sampling. I've got a good idea of what some of the people like, though. I'm always looking for the opinions, but there's a lot of things still where I don't have enough entries to kind of statistically know where people are lying, how old they are. All that stuff, which helps for attracting the interviews. You can't believe how many times people ask me weird questions. And if you're wondering why things are on the thing, it's it's not for public. It's usually because somebody asked me a question about that, about you guys when I'm trying to attract some talent onto the program. I'm going to take a quick moment here because one common answer we're getting is there's a lot of people who say that they would use the enhanced features of this podcast because they do use iTunes or an iPod, but they don't know how. So very quickly, on your iPod, it's simple. Look at the screen. You'll actually see little lines along the marker line, and this indicates the chapters. And you can just simply fast-forward and back up through the segments like you would any album or CD. But on your screen for iTunes, it's a little bit trickier, but there's even a lot more you can do. While you're playing the podcast, you'll notice in the top left-hand menu, the big menu bar, Only when you're playing a podcast that's enhanced will you notice there's a chapters menu. You can open that up and it'll drop down a whole list of every single chapter and you can skip straight to the chapters. Also, if you make sure to open and view your picture window, you will see a picture change for each segment we're working on, and there's even a link on that that will take you directly to the page for the show notes so you can go find out about more information. So hopefully that clears it up. For those of you who do use iTunes and the iPod, the enhanced features make it a lot more fun, especially if you want to check out a segment again. It's so hard to fast forward and rewind. We've got a great show next week. Christine Petty, who I've been a fan of for years as a a regular participant with the Forbidden Broadway series. She's now got a Broadway role in talk radio, and she came down to talk about her career, made for a fascinating interview, and we're going to hear a couple of her recordings from Forbidden Broadway as well. We're also going to hear some live performances from the musical the Diet Monologues. Well, that wraps it up. So once again, I'm your host, Michael Gilvo, and thanks Everybody, for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet. I'll see you next week.
7: The hairs is going the back of my neck. The Broadway Bullet. This age is really moment.
1: We're starved, so should not it should come up? We are so ready and rearing.
10: So, Jake the says my name, and I'm in the can. Chum, 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 chum. Actually, the Barfe thing comes
3: from my whole life. People just. Vulture, Fogler.
0: So, it didn't take much Proposed, uh, Unpackage those things with the audience and explore them a little bit. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theatre majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere. But most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act. Even as freshmen, designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments. Even private loans if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to BroadwayBullet.com.
1: I'd love to help you launch your career.